I don't know how many of you are thankful for these little things, uh, but post-it notes. You know I'm talking about those little peel-them-off post-it notes. Anybody here? Just let's raise a hand. Testimony time. Okay. Thankful for them? Good. Awesome. Um, I, I don't know what it is about them. I really do like them, and I used to use them a lot. I was, like, addicted to them. Okay? So, hello, my name is Rex, and I'm addicted to sticky notes. Okay. Hi, Rex. Um, and so when I was first starting in ministry, I was taking those sticky notes, and every single piece of paper I had was like, oh, yeah, give that to the secretary. Oh, yeah, I need to give that. And I was like, sticky notes everywhere, all the time giving them to her. And I thought, well, that's what you do. Um, after about a few months, finally at one of our staff meetings, our secretary said, um, I just have one request. If, um, if the pastors, if you could all sort of slow down on your sticky notes, you know, like the eyes came at me. It's like, oh, it's me, sorry. Felt bad about it. Not real bad, but I felt bad about it. I was like, okay, I thought that's what you wanted. Well, the next morning I showed up at the office, and on my office door, my intern had taken probably a couple pads of post-it notes and wrote a word on each post-it note, and my whole door was filled with post-it notes. Hey, Rex, when you have time, and he just filled it, and it was just, I stepped back, and I looked, and we just laughed about it. But it's like, am I that bad with post-it notes? But I needed those reminders. And then recently I stopped in an office at a friend of mine and looked at his desk. And he had, I want to say, maybe 20 post-it notes. They were lined up in lines, four and five. And, and I was looking at it going, I thought I was bad. He's got them all over his desk. But I thought about this. I needed that because I needed that focal point. I needed to be reminded, like, Rex, this is priority. Make sure you take care of this. And sometimes if I don't have those reminders in front of me, my mind can go various directions. And maybe that's why sometimes uh, churches will put in their sermon notes in the bulletin and they have fill in the blanks or they got lines and numbers. And so like you can sort of stay focused and follow along. I didn't do that. I didn't go that far. I didn't put post-it notes in your bulletins either. But we all need reminders. We have holidays to remind us to stop and give thanks to stop and remember that Christ died for us, to stop and remember that Christ lives for us. We have holidays to stop and remember those who maybe lost their life in a war or whatever it may be. We have holidays. We have alarms. We have alerts. Yesterday at Landon and Alexa's wedding, uh, it was like, what, 15 minutes to the wedding, my phone goes off. It's like, looked at my phone, it says, there's my alert. Landon's getting married in 15 minutes. Traffic is light. It's like... I hope so, because I'm standing in a church, and I just got to walk out there. So I was hoping traffic was light, but there's my reminder. Um, we have all kinds of things to remind us. Uh, some people have tattoos uh, to remind them of something, a lost one, maybe their faith, uh, wherever it may be. I was um, thinking back to just our own home. You walk into our house. Um, I know when I walk up from the basement steps at the top, there's a placard there with scripture by John. And I know above the fireplace in the living room, there's another amazing grace. And in the dining room, on the wall, big letters, great is thy faithfulness. That's the only thing on that wall. We have reminders placed throughout the house to remind us what we really need to be focused on. Now, in ancient history, Jewish families would place reminders in their homes as well to keep them focused. And so if you would visit the home of an observant Jew, as you enter, you would find, and I I believe Chad maybe preached on this one time, about the small rectangular box that was at the doorpost. And uh, so as you enter, that object is uh, a mezuzah, 
okay? And it's small, but it carries a big message. And in Bible times, the mezuzah was actually just a post. It wasn't a small rectangular box, uh, but the mezuzah was where the blood was applied at the Passover on the doorpost. And then, actually, the mezuzah was also where a servant who said, I am a bondservant to my master, they would take their earlobe, put it up on the doorpost, and then drive a nail through it to pierce their ear. That was a bondservant. So you read about that in the Bible. Uh, that was where the mezuzah was. We read that Eli the priest sat by the mezuzah in the sanctuary. So throughout Scripture, we see this. And the Jews, uh, they sort of transferred that post, that doorpost, to an actual box. And the box uh, was then attached to the doorpost. And as you would walk through this doorway, every time you walked through the doorway, there was a mezuzah. And to the Jew, they knew what was inside the mezuzah is what really mattered. There were two scriptures. They would be on parchments and scroll that was rolled up. And you'd unroll them and you would read these scriptures to remind you how to live today as you go in the house and out of the house. And sometimes they didn't just have it on their front door. They have it on different doorposts throughout the house as well. What scripture? Glad you asked. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. Start off with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you're there. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And this is what was written on one of the parchments. Listen, O Israel, starting in verse 4. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Is that a good way to start the day, to remember who's God? There's only one God. And you must love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the way on a journey, when you're lying down and when you're getting up again. Tie them to your hands as a reminder. Wear them on your forehead. Write them on a doorpost, on your house, and on your gates. So the children of Israel, these, these Jewish people, they would, they would take these. That's one scroll. Put it in the mezuzah. Then they'd pull out the other one. And this was from Deuteronomy chapter 11. So fast forward in your Bibles, just a few chapters, a few pages. To chapter 11, we'll start in verse 13. Verse 13, it says, if you carefully, I love this in the Bible, there's a lot of if-thens. There's a lot of conditionals in there. It's like, if you, then this. Okay, so here's one of those. If you carefully obey all the commands I'm giving you today, and if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and if you worship him, then he'll send the rains in the proper season. So you can harvest crops of grain and grapes for wine and olives for oil. He'll give you lush pasture land for your cattle to graze in and you yourselves have plenty to eat. But don't let your heart turn away from the Lord to worship other gods. If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He'll shut up the sky. He'll hold back the rain. Your harvest will fail. And you'll come you'll quickly die in the good land that the Lord's now given you. 
verse 18. So commit yourselves completely to these words of mine. Here we go. We heard this before, right? Tie them to your hands as a reminder. Wear them on your forehead. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and you're on a way on a journey. When you're lying down and when you get up again. Verse 20. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. That's what was in the doorpost in the mezuzah. So as a Jew would enter into his house, he'd remember, love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And as he would come in and out, he would remember that. He would remember, have I taught my children today to love God? Have I talked with them about the dinner table as we walk places? Have I written it down on my forehead and, and have I tied it to myself? And in other words, am I saturating myself with this and then translating that to my kids? What an incredible reminder. You know, like the post-it note or like the alerts that go off on our phones, we need these kind of reminders to daily get our focus on the Lord our God. So people, you, other churches, hopefully are doing this. Whether it's a placard, whether it's a wall print. Maybe, you know, I was talking to Tom Jagir the other day, and he's got the stones in his pocket that he carries around. And he told me that this is why I carry these. And, and one is similar to what we had had that sermon on Joshua. And I've got one on my, uh, by my bedstand. We wrote a word on there to remember what God said to Joshua. So a lot of these reminders might be very simple things as a stone. It might be something you saw, you bought somewhere. It's like, this reminds me when we first got married and the commitment I made or when I first gave my life to the Lord or when I got baptized. And you have those reminders somewhere in your home. Those are your mezuzahs, so to say. But in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, this is what I want us as a church to write down. Last week I said, write down Romans 8.1, please. Put it on a 3 by 5 card somewhere. So today is sort of a continuation of that message with a little bit more emphasis before we move on to verses 3 and 4. It's a focus only on two verses today. And a lot of it is review or reminder from last week. Why is that? Because if we are told by God to remind each other over and over and over and over again, as a pastor, I'm going to stand before you and say, I know I said it last week, I'm going to say it again with more emphasis and more challenge. Take Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Write it down. Put it where you can see it. Make it, make it your daily reminder, your post-it, your stone, whatever it may be. Let me read this verse to you. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Matter of fact, why don't you go ahead and turn there. Romans, it's in the New Testament. Get past the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. you got Acts and then Romans. Romans chapter 8, considered the greatest chapter in the Bible by many theologians. I heard another pastor say, didn't you say that about the other chapter you preached on the other week? And he said, well, actually, whatever verse or whatever chapter I'm preaching on, that's the greatest chapter in the Bible this week, the one I'm preaching on. Uh, But a lot of theologians will come to agreement that Romans chapter 8 by far is packed with incredible truth and encouragement. Verse 1, so now, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power, let me hear you say power. For the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you through Christ from the power of sin that leads to death. That's it. That's the message. That's what I want you to hear. I want you to write down that reminder over and over and over because here's why. Each of us has an adversary. Look at the person next to you and slap them in the face. Just kidding. 
Just kidding. Some of you are waiting. Okay, in our church, if you're visiting with us, every now and then I say, look at your neighbor and say hi, or look at your neighbor and tell them power. Okay, whatever. Just making sure you're alert, okay? It is a little steamy in here. We have an adversary. Now, seriously, when uh, Jenny and I, we've gone, and I've shared this with you as a church before, and I share this with all my marriage counseling that I do, that when we would go to marriage retreats, we're sitting there, and our speaker's up front, and he goes, look at your spouse next to you, and say, you're not my enemy, right? So we were like, you're not my enemy. That's, so when you look at your neighbor right now, seriously, I don't care who it is, spouse, friend, neighbor, visitor, friend, stranger, just look at them right now and say, you're not my enemy. Go for it. Yeah. Now, if you're married, that's a good practice to continue to do, okay? Because here's the thing. We go through life a lot looking at people as if they are our enemy. You have one adversary. You have one opponent, and that is Satan. And in Revelation 12, 10, it says he stands before God and accuses us day and night. He's the great accuser. And the accusations fly from our adversary at us all the time. So the people around us, sometimes they remind us of our faults, right? They're like, oh, do you remember when you messed up? And sometimes people around us can be very unforgiving and forgiving. But here's the thing. We have an adversary, a real adversary, that looks at us and accuses us day and night. He looks at our confessed sin, and he accuses us. And he looks at our unconfessed sin, and he accuses us. But I believe Satan doesn't accuse us as heavily with the unconfessed, because he wants us to just continue in there. But I believe when it comes to confessed sin, I believe that's when he accuses us the most. Because he wants us to feel guilty. He wants us to feel condemned. And if we believe those false accusations about our forgiven sin, because once we're forgiven, we're forgiven. But if we continue to listen to our adversary, our spiritual energy is zapped, isn't it? You know you've been forgiven, but yet you're like, I don't feel forgiven. And you're just sort of listening to the adversary whispering to your ear, you're not forgiven. Because Christians don't do that. All of a sudden, spiritually, we're just on this feeling worthless and unworthy and less loved by God. One author says this, Condemnation is feeling guilty over confessed sin. Conviction is feeling guilty over unconfessed sin. Let me read that again. Condemnation is feeling guilty over confessed sin. Conviction is feeling guilty over unconfessed sin. Let me share something with you. Conviction is good. Conviction is good. Because it causes us to get right with God. When we feel convicted of something, it causes us to do something. And hopefully it causes us to say, I need to get right with God. Matter of fact, Jesus Christ told his disciples in John chapter 16, he said this. And when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll do what? He will convict the world of its sin. And of God's righteousness and of its coming judgment. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and says, this needs to be fixed in your life. What you did is wrong. That's conviction. It comes upon us. And that conviction makes us, what, feel guilty about this unconfessed sin. That's a good thing because it causes us to move towards God. Condemnation is, I'm feeling condemned. I feel guilty. But didn't you confess that sin? Yes, but I feel guilty. Then that's the accuser talking. Because what do we read in Romans 8.1? Therefore, now what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. 1 John 1.8.9 says this. If we claim to have no sin, 
I didn't do it. I'm perfect, right? What? We're only fooling ourselves, not living in the truth. Verse 9 says this, But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. See, when we confess, God forgives. Listen carefully. When we confess, God forgives. But we don't always think that, do we? Really. Do we really walk away saying, I'm forgiven? Or do we do something different? Finish this sentence if you can, okay? You ready for this? Work with me. Three strikes, your. I'm not going to ask. I thought I heard something. I was like, that was way off. Okay. Everybody had it right. A cat has nine lives. Okay. That's probably about all the finishing the sentences there. Because the next one I have, you probably wouldn't get. But um, I'll try it. I'm going to give you one more warning chance. Try any of those would fit, right? See, here's the point. We've all grown up with limitations on everything. Three strikes, you're out. Cat has nine lives, right? Those are just little sayings we've coined But really, we always say, I'm going to give you one more chance. We put limits on everything. And I think what happens sometimes is we put limits on God's love and forgiveness. I don't know if he can really forgive me again because I continue to mess up. I'm struggling with this habitual sin habit. And can God really forgive me? I mean, he's got to have a limit on his grace. He's got to have a limit on his love and forgiveness. Because I don't know how many more times he's going to continue to forgive me. Our forgiveness runs, or our forgiveness towards others, I should say, runs to a certain level too. You know, he did this to me. That's the last time I'm forgiving them. That's just the way we are. We limit our forgiveness towards other people. We say, no, I'm not going to forgive him for that. We just put the limit up right there. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, no. So because we put limits on how we forgive others, we sometimes start to think God has limits on how he can forgive us too, right? God doesn't work that way with us. It's not his nature. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, Peter has this conversation with Jesus. They've been talking, some arguing has been going on about who's the greatest. Jesus warns against temptation, looking down on others. And then in verse 21, Peter comes up to Jesus. And he says, hey, Lord, how often should I forgive somebody who sins against me? Seven times? Now, you have to think how maybe Peter says this. I mean, I'm picturing him like a little smirk on his face, like I've got the best answer. Because really, three is, you know, I forgive somebody. If you forgive somebody three times, you're, you're good, okay? So I'm going to up it to seven. So Jesus, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times? Like, I got the answer. And Jesus is like, no. How about 70 times 7? 70 times 7? 473 times? Oh, sorry, what? Oh, that's wrong. 490, 490 times? What? Are you, are you serious? That's a lot, right? And Jesus is like, you're not getting it. Let me tell you a story. So look at the story that Jesus tells. Verse 23, chapter 18 of Matthew. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can, can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in. He owed him millions of dollars. 
or it talks about 10,000 talents. Okay? He, verse 25, he couldn't pay, so the king ordered that he, his wife and his kids, everything he had be sold to pay the debt. But the man fell down before the king and begged him, Oh, sir, be patient with me. I'll pay it all. The king was filled with pity for him. He released him. He forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat, demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him, begged him a little bit more. Be patient, I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, jailed, until the debt could be paid in full. Now, when some of the other servants saw this, they were upset. They went to the king and told him what happened. The king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison until he paid every penny. Jesus concluded the story by saying, That, that's what my heavenly father would do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters in your heart. God forgives us an immense debt. We limit how much we forgive people. God says, I have no limit. I'm forgiving it all. So don't you dare put a limit on how you forgive other people. I want you to think this through. Do the math with me, okay? There's 10,000 talents in this debt. That's what it says, 10,000 talents. Now, one talent equals 60 minutes. Okay? One minna equaled three months wages. So we take three months wages times 60 minutes. We're saying one talent is going to equal 180 months of wages. That's 15 years just for one talent. How many talents did he own? 10,000. So 10,000 talent debt, that's 150,000 years of debt. 150,000 years of debt. Think about that, okay? That would be if, let's say, I work 70 years. That would take me 2,143 lifetimes to pay off my debt. Do you see how big of a debt this is? How big of an example Jesus has given? So you've seen the impossibility right now to pay this off. Let's do something even more fun, okay? Minimum wage in the state of Ohio is $8.10. Take minimum wage a 40-hour week, and you're going to make a little under $17,000 this year at minimum wage. So at $17,000, that's not much, but multiply that by 150,000 years of wages. You will now owe $2,550,000,000. That's billions. So when this servant stood before the king, owing, if we did the translation today here now, over two billion, over two and a half billion dollars. I can't pay off two and a half billion dollars. Do you know how big of a debt that is? And the king forgives him and wipes that debt clean. Now, think about that kind of forgiveness. Our sins stacked up like those dollars. Just picture it. How could God forgive? all my sins. Does he not know what I've done? The people I've lied to, the exaggerations, uh, my sins in secret, my sins that exposed everybody, all my sins. And we're to take them. And what does he do? It's really simple. He takes them and he nails them 
to the cross. There's a song that says, um, My sin, oh, the glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. What Jesus did, and what God did, is he took our sins, all of our sins, you name them, you write them down, and he took all those sins that we could never in our own time be forgiven. And God says, I'm going to forgive them all. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to take your sins, and I'm nailing it to the cross. It's paid in full. He forgives the whole sin, the whole debt. And Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, that was our sin being nailed to the cross. John 19, 30 Jesus says, he proclaimed what? At the, what was his last word? Do you remember the last words of Jesus Christ? It is finished, right? He bowed his head, he gave up the Holy Spirit. And that word means to bring a close, to bring a finish, to complete. But it also meant something else. That same word was used back in that day when you had an invoice, a receipt. At the bottom, you would write that same Greek word meaning paid in full. The word that Jesus used when he said it is finished is the same words meaning paid in full. And you would hand that paperwork to the person that was paying off their debt and say, you're paid in full. You owe nothing. Jesus proclaimed those words from the cross, taking our sins, saying, you owe nothing. I paid in full. How bad are our sins? How big are our sins? Do you really think God's supply of grace is too small? I don't think so. See, when we seek forgiveness, our sin is transferred to Jesus' account. But if you remember what I said last week, there's something that he transfers back to us, and that is his righteousness. It's credited to our account. To be in Christ means we stand in righteousness. We are right with God. Look at um, back at uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But in Romans 1, 7, let me read this to you as you're working your way back to Romans 8. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. How do I get right in the sight of God? It's accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. See, God condemns sin and the sinful man. He hates sin. So God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be our sin offering. And Jesus, our sin offering, if you remember at Easter, I used that big word propitiation, which is a biblical word, okay? But it means that Jesus is the sin offering to God. He takes the wrath of God and he turns it aside. And he takes it on. He drinks the cup. He takes the wrath of God. That wrath that God has against sin, Jesus takes. Romans 1, 18 to 19 says this, But God shows his wrath from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's a fact. God has wrath towards sin. Verse 19, they know the truth about God because he made it obvious to them. Romans chapter 2, 7 to 9 says this, but he will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after his glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he'll pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, those who refuse to obey the truth instead of live lives of wickedness. There'll be trouble and calamity for everyone. 
keeps on doing what's evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. So what does Jesus do? He redeems us. When he was on that cross, he redeems us. And to redeem is another ancient word, but like propitiation, it means to buy something out of the marketplace. So if I go into the marketplace and I redeem something, what I'm doing is I'm going to buy this cup, I'm going to take it out of the marketplace, and it will never be sold in the cup again, which probably doesn't mean much. But if I were to take a person, a slave in the marketplace, to buy them out of the marketplace so that they would never be sold again, I just freed that slave. I redeemed that slave from its taskmaster. So when Jesus dies and he's called our redeemer, he is purchasing us, paying for the sin to free us from slavery to sin. We're freed. We're redeemed. Purchased to be freed. Let's read Romans 8, 1 and 2 again. So now there's no condemnation, not guilty, for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because you belong to him, because you've been redeemed, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Jesus redeems us. He frees us. God's Holy Spirit joins us with Christ. Paul uses that phrase in Christ like 164 times through Scripture, which is a lot, which means we better pay attention to it. We're joined in Christ through the Spirit. So it's hard to picture. So Jesus is like, let me give you a picture. John 15, you can find a great picture there. Jesus says, I'm the true grapevine and my Father is the gardener. And he goes on to say, he cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they'll produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. So listen very carefully. Jesus says this, remain in me, I will remain in you. For a branch can't produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. You can't be productive unless you remain in me. You can't produce unless you remain in me. So Jesus is saying, God is the what? The gardener. And Jesus is the grape vine, the vine. We are the branches. So if this was the vine and these are the branches, we've got to stay connected to produce fruit. Apart from Christ, once you take that branch off the vine, it's not producing anything. So what connects us to the vine? How does the branch stay connected to the vine? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So as we're connected in Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're able to produce things. So again, there's no condemnation. Not guilty. You're forgiven. For those who belong to Jesus Christ. What does verse 2 say? And because you belong to Him... The power of the life-giving Spirit frees you from the power of sin. We're free. We're free. As a believer in Christ, I often feel like this. I often feel like doubt's winning, though. Even though I'm free as a Christian, even though I'm free from sin, even though I'm forgiven, there are times I don't feel forgiven. There are times I don't feel free. I feel bounded to sin. Why is that? Because my accuser's got a really big mouth, probably. Right? So I need those reminders placed in front of me like, you know what? I'm free. By the grace of God, I'm free. And great is his faithfulness. No condemnation for me who belongs in Christ. The life-giving power of the Spirit resides in me to have power over sin. Same for you. So we need those reminders because I can't live victoriously because a lot of times that doubt and that accuser gets loud. So here's the deal. 
Here's what I want to challenge you with. I want to challenge you to knock doubt out of the game. To knock the questions, I wonder, out of the game. I want you to live with truth and confidence that God's word provides for us. Now, Julian probably doesn't remember this day, and I do. I remember this day so well. Many years ago, we had uh, these dodgeball tournaments at Crossroad Church. And we're talking 15, 20 years ago, okay? And it wasn't just for kids, but it was for adults too. And we had a lot of fun. And here's the thing. I'll never forget playing against Julian Delgado, okay? Because Julian's name in Northwest Ohio was big in baseball, okay? Um, you know, and I, I had to get my clarification. I had to ask Julian this morning, like, okay, I thought, you know, you had these, you know, help me remember, after high school, did you go on to play college ball and all this? Because I remember your name was floating big time, and he said he had a lot of offers and, and that kind of stuff. And, yeah, he was, had the, he was playing dodgeball, okay? And he was on your team. He's the guy you want on your team because he had such a strong arm. And I remember our team, we are getting ready to play, and it's like, oh, we're going against Julian's team. Look, he's got a strong arm, you know, and they're like, we're all scared, you know? And uh, so I admit, when we were playing, I kept my eye on him, okay? I always play on the right side of the court, and this, this eye was always looking for Julian, okay? And I'll never forget, I had a ball. And I went up, and I tried to get this guy right in front of me, and I was like, oh. And as soon as I threw it, there's Julian. And he's just coming, and he's honing in on me. I'm making backpedal, backpedal, slow motion, you know? And I just see his arm cocked back, and that ball's coming like 110 miles per hour. I'm like, no. Right? And I was like, I was toast. And here's the thing. I caught it. Now, in dodgeball, if you catch the ball that the guy threw, he's out. There was a hush in the gym. I mean, there was like 100 plus people. There was like, at first it was like as quiet. There was like, oh, he caught it. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah. Here's the deal. There's the only one reason why I caught it. He threw it so hard, it embedded about eight inches into my body. It was like, it's just it was like, a, it was like a cartoon cannonball that just stuck inside me. It was like, that's an easy, just put an arm around it. I got it, you know. There was, it was an act of God or I don't know how to describe it, but um, it surprised me more than anybody else. I mean, everybody else was surprised. That's like number one surprise for me, okay? But I, and I, here's the thing. I know we won that round, okay, because we're like, yeah, we won that round. And I'm sure they knocked us out later, but anyway, it's... I'm going to live off that one, that one time, okay? So I was thinking about this. So many times when we're trying to live for Christ, it's like if we could just get doubt out of our minds and live with truth and confidence, we'd be so much more victorious. If we just knock doubt out of there, right? And we think we can't. And I think back to that moment, it's like, I caught it. He, he's out. I knocked him out. So now we have a better chance of winning. And that's sort of the picture I have is, if you could just knock doubt out of your game of life, can you imagine how more victorious we'd be in living for Christ? No condemnation, thanks to the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You are no longer condemned. So stop living in doubt and guilt and frustration. Start living in victory. Start living in that power of the life-giving spirit over sin. Amen? I'm going to say it again. I did it last week. I'm going to say it again. Get a card, get a paper, get a placard, get something. Write Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 on it. Place it somewhere. We need those reminders. We need those daily reminders that we are victorious in Christ. Not guilty. No condemnation. No more.
because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. Would you please stand? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your truth. I thank you, Lord, for the victory you give us. Lord, I thank you for moments in life when we need those reminders and we we sort of forget all of a sudden, boom, there's that reminder. Yes, I can be victorious. No more doubt. No more doubt. The accuser can shout all he wants, but Christ is on my side. His life-giving power through his spirit fills us. We are free from sin. It's been nailed to the cross, paid in full, finished. And he gives us a right standing, connected to the true vine. God, help us to know this truth. Help us to live this truth. Help us to celebrate this truth. Help us be victorious in all we do. God, we love you. We thank you that we can go through this pause to share through us in Romans because we need these kind of words to help us be victorious. Bless this time as we sing to you. In that name we pray. Amen.